So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the book of Acts, reading from the second chapter, verses 41 and 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this, oh, what a vital part, what a beautiful part, what a blessed part of your word you have given us here, this window that we get to look at the germinal church in its pristine state. Lord, help each one of us to be considering our own relationship and, and, and how we measure up to this apostolic church in the very beginning of the church. We'll give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, many of you know that we've been going through Luke and especially in the temptations. And one of the things that we have noticed during those temptations is the connection between Jesus as the second Adam and Adam in the garden at the beginning of time, especially when it came to the modus operandi of the devil. I hadn't learned any new tricks since that time. Now, I want to continue in that vein this morning, but in a slightly different way. If you go back to the first and second chapters of Genesis, we have an extraordinary window into the world that God made the way that he made it. The one that he stepped back and said on the sixth day, this is very good, okay? I like what I've made, Now, we know that when he made the man, that he uh, said, well, no, that's not exactly what I want. It's not good that he would be alone. And so, therefore, he made the woman. And like, it's it's a beautiful love story in the first and second chapters of Genesis. And we we get to look at that love story. It's, It's like when God brings the woman to the man, it's like a father walking his daughter down the aisle. And, and when Adam sees her, he breaks out into song. Really, the first poetry in the Bible is when Adam says, Here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the two became one in a, an institution that was so important to God that he showed it to us. The only one that he really shows to us in its pristine state before the fall. Now, we of course know that when Eve first fell to the temptation of the devil and then later on Adam did and they they were cast out of the garden. Well, if you read those curses in the third chapter of, of Genesis, you find that they all center around marriage and relationships between the husband and wife and childbearing and the, and the family. But throughout the history, right there at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, we have the beginning of God's redemption plan and he begins the process of bringing the bride back into that relationship when God brought that bride to Adam she was pure she was perfect she was beautiful she was undefiled she was in her sinless pristine state 
And all of redemptive history has been the bringing the bride back into that state. Of course, the bride changes. It's not Eve anymore. As we go through history, it is the, a, a particular people group. First through Noah, as everyone else was destroyed. And then through Adam, through Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his son, we see the children of Israel. And they're often referred to as a bride or as the bride of God. In other words, in Jeremiah, when talking of the new covenant, this is what God says to that prophet. He says, my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So that that language of marriage continues on until the glorious consummation of all of God's plan when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins so that the bride could once again be undefiled. Isaiah uses beautiful language about this. We talked, we actually read this last week from the 61st chapter. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now notice the language. As a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, the bridegroom is now Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the bride, brothers and sisters, is us. The, the church becomes the bride of Christ. Now, when God made the first bride, Eve, he made her from a rib of the man. Well, this bride is different. This bride is not made. She's remade because we are new creations in Christ. Paul said that to the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So, so what's my point here? Well, my point is that in this particular passage, which is Pentecost, we'll talk about it a little bit later on, we have the same window into the pristine bride of Christ that we got in the pristine bride of Adam in the first and second chapters of Genesis. Before corruption set in, before persecution set in, before Jezebel sneaks in the back door and Balaam begins to to spout his false prophecies, before the weeds are sown within the wheat, we have this pristine view of the germinal church, what I call the apostolic church, the church as it was supposed to be. Now, this is the second through the fourth chapters of Acts. By the fifth chapter, we're going to start seeing both external persecution and internal corruption through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And from that point on, it has been a long history of the church being diluted. Now, my point is this, and I'll make this point a little bit better later on, that here at the end of the second chapter, post-Pentecost, we have that perfect, pristine, redeemed bride of Christ in all her glory before the problem set in. And I'll make that clearer as we go along. But anyway, that brings us up to right where we are in the book of Acts. 
So let me sort of set the groundwork as far as what has already happened. So when we turn to this, this passage, we kind of have the context of it. We're only about 10 days after Jesus has left. Remember, he took his disciples out onto the Mount of Olives. And just before he left, he gave them a commission in the first chapter of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. He gave them a commission to be his witnesses and he told them that they're going to be baptized as it were with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the fifth verse, that's what he said for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So... What he's referring to there, and we know this, was the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after the Passover, the day of Pentecost came. And it was a day of miracles as the Holy Spirit descended upon the fledgling church in power and glory. We read about that. Now, by the way. You may just want to keep that second chapter of Acts open because I'm going to be dancing or bouncing around in that chapter. And I'll tell you where I'm reading from as I do. This is um, from the second verse in the second chapter. And it speaks of the extraordinary manifestation of the Spirit. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was a time where the, where the Holy Spirit just kind of woke everybody up and said, Hey, listen, I am upon this church. But not only was it a day for miracles, it was a day for preaching. And, and if you look carefully at the text, you'll see that it wasn't just Peter preaching, but Peter's the one that Luke tells us about. And so Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ in power. In the 36th verse, we see him again, mainly Jews who were there. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then he pointed the finger at them for sending Jesus to the cross. This Jesus whom you crucified. And it was a powerful sermon. And so the people were deeply convicted. Look in the 37th verse. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay, we're, we're guilty as charged. Now what can we do? And that's when Peter calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in the 38th verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, that brings us up to our text for this morning. Because what happened is when Peter, either all at once or throughout the day, when he called for repentance, 3,000 souls were saved on the spot. Let's read that in the 41st verse. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, 
here's what I want you to see. Remember I, I told you about uh, that pristine view of the bride of Adam in the garden, and then, of course, everything changed at the fall. Well, the reason that I'm going to say that this is the pristine church is that the Holy Spirit doesn't save people halfway. He, he, he doesn't simply, you know, put the idea in your head. When the Holy Spirit acts like this, descends upon a group of people, how many of the 3,000 souls who made professions of faith on that day, how many of those people were truly born again, true believers in Jesus Christ, regenerated, completely reformed? How many? 3,000, exactly. So in other words, we have 120 people to start with, and we have 3,000 people added. 3,120 absolutely regenerated, born-again, Christ-following, God-loving Christians at the same place and the same time. 100% of the church is pristine and beautiful. And that is why, through the second, third, and fourth chapters, we're going to have this little picture of this amazing group of people. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the way they shared all their resources and how deeply they loved each other as part of that. We're going to focus in on the 42nd verse, partially today and partially when I, I return, in four attributes or marks of the apostolic church. Four things that typified who they were and what they did. And what I want to do is, after we kind of establish what this is, I want to step back and I want to ask ourselves, how do we measure up? But both as a church, as a corporate body, but also as individuals recognizing that any church is simply a collection of individual Christians. How do we measure up to the standards that are expressed here of this apostolic church or Unfortunately, I, I, I think that the better way to phrase that is how far have we fallen from this? Because as I said, at this particular point in time, we have a 100% reborn, regenerated church. So let's look at the 42nd verse and see what they did. How did they spend their time? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and there actually should be a the before fellowship and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we're going to take the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers next time. This morning, I want to focus in entirely on just that first phrase. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And I don't feel so bad that I'm going to split this up because Martin Lloyd-Jones preached eight sermons on this one verse, right? So, you know, you think I'm bad. And and his sermons weren't short either. But anyway, we're going to just kind of focus in on this, this one phrase here, because unfortunately, that is not the situation we have in the church today. It has been diluted amazingly. Just give you an example Um, June 3rd, 1973, Billy Graham crusade had its largest ever crusade. It was in Seoul, South Korea. 
And there was no uh, amphitheater large enough to hold all the people, so they held it on the tarmac of a massive airstrip. 1.1 million people attended that meeting. And of that 1.1 million, after they had counted all of the cards that were turned in, 75,000 people signed cards. They said, I'd like to accept Jesus as my Savior. 75,000 conversions were reported by the Billy Graham crusade. Now, forgive me for being a skeptic, but I wonder how many of those actually were born-again Christians. I wonder actually how many of them were of the same internal change that occurred with the people at Pentecost and how many of them were just uh, uh, responding to an invitation. Now, we'll never know. It's impossible. We'll know when we get to heaven how all of those things work. But I don't think it was 100%. In fact, Dr. Sproul, in his commentary on Acts makes the statement that he estimates that less than 10% of those who claim to be born again actually are. Let me just repeat that. Less than 10% of the people who actually say, I'm born again Christian, are born again. Now, the reason that this exists, or one of the reasons that this exists, the problem is in the way we count conversions, right? Right? walk down the aisle, you say a prayer, you raise your hand, you fill out a card, and we count you as a conversion. But it's not always like that. Several years, well, not several years, many years ago now, Kay and I were in Malawi, Africa. I was making a, a video for the African Bible College. And while we were there making that video, um, um, a, 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 an evangelistic organization came out of the United States to hold a very large evangelistic seminar where they were teaching a particular van- evangelism program. Many of the people they were teaching it to were the students of this Bible college. So when they went out into the highways and byways to share the gospel, well, I followed them with my camera. And, and I noticed something that was occurring over and over again. And I'll just give you one example. We were in a hospital, and it was a typical developing nation hospital where, you know, yeah, they had a few beds, but they had probably 150 bodies on the floor. I mean, it was filled with people. And through an interpreter, a translator, someone shared the gospel. I mean, they speak English in Malawi, but their heart language is Chichewa. So it was in Chichewa. And when they got to the end of the gospel, the person, an American, said, Now, who would like to accept Jesus and go to heaven? Well, every hand of the room went up. Every single person. So they counted them real quick. Hundred conversions Welcome to the family of God, a hundred new souls saved and in the church of Jesus Christ today. Well, at the end of the week when they had their gathering and they all got together and compared notes, the electricity in the room was amazing. 1,800 people accepted Christ in just three days. So they all patted themselves on the back and felt real good about themselves and went home and a Malawian, we stayed, of course, because we were making the video. A Malawian came up afterwards and says, you know, they, they don't understand Malawi culture. That if you ask a Malawian, would you like to receive Christ? They're going to say yes. They're a very polite people, and they don't want to offend you. 
So none of those people who raised their hands you could count as a true conversion because that's just cultural. And yet they get, they get listed as conversions. And that's part of the problem we have, folks, is we, 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 we take such a cheap conversion. Sometimes we call it easy believism. That's kind of at the root of it. It's so easy. All you got to do is walk down the aisle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. And, and it's so easy. All you have to do is make a profession. And then because you say something on the outside, you're, you're expecting that something has happened on the inside. But actually what happened at Pentecost is exactly the opposite of that. The Holy Spirit regenerated them on the inside and that couldn't stay inside. So the profession comes to the outside because of what has happened inside the heart. You can't switch the order of things. The Holy Spirit has to be involved. And so therefore, the very root of the way that we count confessions today gives us a major problem in being able to actually understand how many people are in the church. Jesus knew this. He, he, he taught this. Remember the parable? It was a famous parable that he taught about the weeds and the wheat. Remember, he was talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the church. And he says, it's like a man who has a field. And he goes out and he sows good wheat (laughs) um, seeds in the field. And then an enemy comes by at night and sows weeds in the middle of them. And when they begin to show themselves, the servants recognize the difference. They run to the master and say, master, what should we do? And the master says, you can't pull them up or else you're going to pull the tender shoots of the wheat up with them. Let them grow side by side. Let them intermingle. Let them exist in the same field until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, that's when we'll divide them. So Jesus told us through that parable that we are going to have diluted churches. That we are going to have churches where it's not 100% like it was at Pentecost. Jesus further told us that there's going to be attacks against the church, not just from the outside persecution, but there's going to be attacks from the inside. Remember what he said in the book of Revelation, talking about the seven churches? He said this to the church at Thyatira. He says, I have this against you. Jesus was going through all the churches and saying, I like this, but I don't like that, you know? And and he says this, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And and he said the same thing to, uh, to Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, Excuse me, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Brothers and sisters, this is tragic. Why is it tragic? Why would I say that the dilution of the church is tragic? Why wouldn't I say, hey, look, what, look, look what happened at Pentecost. Isn't it better just to fill the church with as many people as we can? Let's get more bodies in here and therefore we'll be successful as far as the way the world counts success. The reason it's tragic, brothers and sisters, when you dilute the church with unbelievers, 
Unbelievers start making the decisions. Unbelievers start stating what's true and what's not true. Unbelievers start telling you how you should worship. And so therefore, it is absolutely, completely, and totally tragic the way that this goes. Unlike that is the pristine church of Pentecost. And that's, exa- that's all that I'm trying to, to point out to you. No cheap grace. No easy believism. No Jezebel. No Balaam. No weeds in the wheat. But a pure, unadulterated 3,120 people in love with Jesus Christ. And that's, I believe, what the Lord is doing in the book of Acts. To give us this beautiful picture of the church before the corruption set in and the persecution set in. So that we can hold it up as a model. So that we can look at that model and ask ourselves, how are we doing? Or how far have we fallen? Now, as I said, there are four different aspects that are here. We're only going to look at the first one. And that is that in this church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. (sighs) Sounds simple, doesn't it? Not exactly. What do we mean by apostles' teaching? What do we mean by, and we'll talk about what it means to devote yourself later, but what do we mean by the apostles' teaching? What were the apostles actually teaching that captivated the early church? Well, I, I think the best way to find out is just turn to the book of Acts, because that's what the book is, the Acts of the Apostles. It tells us all about the things that they were teaching and preaching. And I'm just going to pick out three things. It's not an exhaustive list, but I will pick out three things that we know for certain, because it listed for us right there, most of them right there in the second chapter of Acts, of exactly what the apostles were teaching and preaching. First thing is they were Bearing witness like Jesus told him to do back in the first chapter. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the world. They're bearing witness about Jesus. I read you one of the verses earlier, the 16th verse. I'm sorry, uh, the 36th verse. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. We've come to think that the gospel is a technical description of how you get saved. So we talk about the cross, we talk about forgiveness, we talk about atonement, we talk about propitiation and expiation and righteousness and resurrection. We talk about all those things and we forget that the gospel actually is the good news about Jesus Christ. To bear witness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. And that's what these these apostles are teaching the people. They're teaching them what Jesus taught them. In other words, Jesus comes from heaven, the first apostle or the first sent one, bearing the very words of God. And they, he shared it with the apostles. Now, Jesus told the apostles what was going to happen. I'm leaving, and it's actually a good thing that I leave because when I leave, the helper is going to come. Going back to the Upper Room Discourse, which, by the way, is 13th through the 16th chapter of John, the 
uh, high priestly prayer being the 17th chapter. But here's something that Jesus says there. He says, but the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what's going on as the apostles teach and preach to the early church. The Holy Spirit is bringing to their remembrance everything that Jesus taught them. And Jesus, remember, is the living word. The logos in the flesh. So in other words, these are the words of God. And, and, and we, we read more about it in the 15th verse. I'm sorry, the 15th chapter. But when the helper comes, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. So Jesus is the apostle from heaven. The Father gives him the words that he wants him to say. Jesus says, I only say what the Father tells me to say. And he comes, and if you remember at our chain of revelation, Jesus is... The living words. He's the living word of God incarnate. And while he's with his apostles, he doesn't write anything down. So he shares with them the spoken words. He speaks to them everything they need to know over the three or so years that he was here. Well, now the apostles are sharing the same word with the church. It's The revealed word, because the Holy Spirit is there to make sure they don't forget anything. And then after that, when it's written down, it becomes the written word. And that's what we have here, this Bible that we have, that we turn to every day. That's the written word of God, straight from the mouth, from the mind, from the heart of God. And so the first thing that the apostles are definitely teaching is Jesus and what Jesus told them and what his ministry and purpose was. But there's something else that we need to remember that the modern Christendom church has all but forgotten. And that is that everything they taught was grounded in Scripture. And Scripture to them was not the New Testament. Scripture to them was the Old Testament. And all you have to do, once again, is just turn to Peter's Pentecost sermon because three times he refers to the Old Testament as Jesus often did, as Paul often did, as John often did, as Peter often did. They always are referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, if you go back to the 16th verse there, notice what he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In other words, almost word for word, he quotes from Joel 2 when a naysayer said, oh, you guys are just drunk. And and Peter uses Joel to say, no, we're not drunk. This is what happened, that Joel all those centuries ago prophesied would have occurred. Later on, when he is making an argument for Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, he goes to David and the Psalms. First, he quotes from the 16th, I'm sorry, yeah, the 16th Psalm in verse 25. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Later on, he quotes from the 110th Psalm in verse 34. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Grounding everything that he is saying and verifying it by what was said in the Old Testament. So a good way to look at the way that the apostles are teaching this germinal church is to remember what Jesus did to those two disciples on the way to Emmaus because they're doing the same thing. Remember what we read in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So first he's sharing everything about Jesus, or the apostles are, and then secondly, they're grounding it in the Old Testament, and thirdly, something that incorporates both of those, they're preaching the resurrection. I mean, you cannot read the New Testament without recognizing that there was an emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're using Old Testament and New Testament and the actual event, the fact that we, they all saw it, in fact, going into verse 31 there in the second chapter. He's talking about David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, we all are witnesses. Okay, we saw him. He's making a great argument, by the way. He's going back to the 110th Psalm and saying, you know, David said that his body wouldn't see corruption and that he wouldn't go into the grave. Hades is kind of like going into the grave in the Greek mindset. And basically what he's saying is, okay, let's take a field trip, guys. He's in the temple, right? So let's take a field trip. Let's just go down the hill a little bit because David's tomb's down there. And we're going to find that his bones are are moldering away in that tomb. Now, after that, let's go look at Christ's tomb because it's empty. And so he's using the Old Testament and things that David said to bring it to life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's what they were teaching. Now let's ask ourselves, what does Luke mean by they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Remember, this is our model that we're looking at. They were devoted. What does that word devoted mean? Well, it's a strong word. (laughs) It it, it actually has sort of a dual nuance to the meaning. On the one hand, it means a deep devotion to the word, and it means to persist in the study of the word. So one of the tracks that we're going to take is that it means to be diligent, to be dedicated, to be devoted, to study constantly, to busy oneself with study, to immerse oneself in the study, to inundate oneself with the study and the pursuit of God's Word. The image that we should have here, brothers and sisters, is of the people sitting at the feet of the apostles, literally hanging on every word. Every word, every day, all during the day, they were devoting themselves, immersing themselves in the study of the word of God as it was being shared by the apostles. But that word doesn't just mean diligent study because it has another track to it, which means to hold fast to or to stick 
to, or to continue in, or to persevere in, or to make it part of you, assimilate it in you, almost like we'd assimilate the bread of life when we were talking about that when Jesus said, to become part of you and to apply it and implement it day after day after day to accept it as the truth of God and therefore um, uh, putting it into practice in what you do. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a casual reading. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year and I'm zip, zip through. Well, what did you read? I don't know. But I read it. I read scripture. Or like me, you'll sit down to read scripture and you'll read for 10 minutes and you find out you're thinking about something way off someplace else. You haven't absorbed a single word that you've read. That's not what's being discussed here. It is to absorb it. It is to recognize its importance, to elevate it as far as truth is concerned and to live your life according to what it says. That's what it means that the early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles. So how do we stack up to that? How would we compare ourselves to that? This is the way that the early church spent their time. How would we see ourselves as doing that? Now, before I go into it, Let me ask you a question. I'll kind of bring it into a modern context. What is the difference between devotion to the teaching of the apostles and doctrine? Good doctrine, solid doctrine, doctrine that comes from Scripture. What's the difference? There is none. They're synonymous. Okay? So next time you hear somebody say, I don't need doctrine, doctrine divides, we'll talk about that in a moment. There's no difference between what the apostles are teaching, which is solid scriptural doctrine and good doctrine, okay? The kind of good doctrine that we need to be engaged in, that we need to be part of. Now, one thing you did not see in this germinal, pristine church You didn't see them saying, well, this is really good, but it's just only one source of authority. You know, what we really have to do is be well-rounded. We we can't kind of just focus in on one word and one word only. What are the Gnostics saying? We need to incorporate that in. What are the Manichaeans saying? We need to incorporate that in. And we also have to include the ethical systems of the different cultures around us. So we have to consider Greek culture and Roman culture and Syrian culture and Egyptian culture. And we'll put them all in a bag and we'll shake it up and we'll get our version of the truth of God. They didn't do that, folks. They were focused in on one source of authoritative truth, and that was the Word of God. They were singular in their focus. How far have we fallen? How different are we? Well, those of you who know me know that I I hate to quote statistics because they're just so depressing. But one of the organizations that collects statistics like this is known as Pew Research. And a couple of years ago, they did a poll among, and this is the United States, 
They did a poll upon people in the United States to ask them, okay, you're a professing Christian. How many times do you read the Bible? Do do you read it once a week? Once. One time a week. Okay? Do you you open it and and look at it? Only 35% of professing Christians could say that. That means that 65% of those who call themselves Christians, cannot even say that I have sat at the feet of the apostles once this week or that I have turned to the word of God once this week. And the statistics get worse from there. Um, Almost 50% of the professing church never opened the word of God, ever. Never read it. I don't need it. I, 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 I know what I need to know. Well, how, how do you know anything if you don't read the Word of God? I, I, how do you know you're saved? How do you know who Jesus was? How do you know what God expects of you? Oh, I don't need to do it. I have this experience. I hold Jesus in my heart, and that's all that I need. I just, I, I feel it in here. Or the priest told me this, and, and I believe my priest. Or the guy on TV told me this, and I believe, man, he was such a great speaker. I believe what he says. Or I've got this voice in my head that tells me all that God wants me to know. That's God in my head talking to me. How do you know it's God in your head? How do you know it's not the devil in your head? If you don't have any word of God to compare it to. And so, yeah, we're talking about a crisis. We're talking about biblical illiteracy to the most extraordinary degree. How bad is it? There are about 2.5 billion people in this world, on this planet, who profess to be Christians in one way or another. 2.5 billion Of those 2.5 billion people, 2.3, I'm sorry, 2.2 billion either go to churches or belong to denominations that have openly denied the authority of Scripture alone. Openly. They have, I mean, it's part of, the, of, of, of their core beliefs that, that, no, we don't believe that this is the, uh, the, the inerrant, the infallible uh, word of God. That, that this is absolutely sufficient, that it is absolutely clear, that it is absolutely authoritative, and that it is absolutely necessary. Now, we, we, we change it to fit our needs. out of 2.5 billion people belong to churches and denominations that say that. Now, I'm not saying they're not saved, folks. Don't get me wrong. What I'm doing is pointing to the activity of the germinal church the way we were when we were established. And I am saying we have seriously fallen. Roman Catholicism, which was the largest group of Christians in the world have said, yeah, the scripture is great, we love the scripture, but it's also the infallible words of the Pope, the infallible words of the councils of the church, and the infallible traditions of the church. All of those are equally authoritative. It's not just the word of God. Then you have mainstream Protestantism that now has become so liberal that they deny the supernatural nature of the word of God. You could boil it down only to one word. Love your neighbors as yourself. God is the universal father of all the brotherhood of men. That's all you really need to know. Then you have a massive movement of Pentecostal and Charismatics 
who say, well, the Bible's all well and good, but I need a fresh word from God today. You know, he speaks to me in my head. So let's shut the Bible and let's talk about what God says now, today. Brothers and sisters, we have fallen. We have fallen hard. One of the mottos of modern Christendom, it's been around for a couple of decades, the emerging church and other churches say this. Have you ever heard this? I don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. All I need is Jesus, right? All I need is Jesus. And and I know that I'm saved and I hold Jesus in my heart and I don't need doctrine because doctrine divides. You might as well say, if it's good doctrine, like we're talking about here, you might as well say the Bible divides. And you know something? It does. It divides people Completely, It is an exclusive book. And so, yes, the Bible divides when it is properly read. But I would, I would just ask this question of those, and again, I, I tend to step on people's toes and they never come back again. But if that's you who says, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus, how do you know you need Jesus if you don't have any doctrine? Because if you say, I have Jesus in my heart and I have saved, you have just incorporated into that statement the doctrine of humiliation, the doctrine of incarnation, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of resurrection, of ascension and coronation that Jesus is Lord in your life. You have just expressed a full gambit of doctrines by simply saying, I love Jesus. And I hold him in my heart. How do you know you love Jesus? How do you know what Jesus expects of you? How do you know anything if you don't have doctrine? That wouldn't have flown at all amongst this early group. Um, They would have probably called it heretical to have doubted the teaching of the apostles. I think Paul put it in very, very specific language when he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know what that word means? Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be condemned. If he teaches any doctrine other than the gospel that I, Paul speaking, have taught you, or the gospel of the apostles, because it's, it's all the same. So, brothers and sisters, how can you say you're spirit-filled if you don't read the Bible? How can a church say it's spirit-filled if it doesn't teach and preach the Bible? Once again, let me just read this to you from Dr. R.C. Sproul. He says very emphatically, there is no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who neglects the study of the Word of God. Let me repeat that. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who neglects the study of the Word of God. He goes on to say this about churches. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that does not give itself continually and steadfastly to the study of sacred scripture. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that simply closes the Bible and doesn't teach 
the core doctrines that are expressed there of the Christian faith. And so, dear brothers and sisters, doctrine divides. It does. I'm not going to deny that. But you see, what Paul said in Galatians is that it needs to divide. For some reason, we think that unity is the one non-negotiable in the Christian church. And yes, oh my goodness, Jesus really desperately wants us to be unified, one together in him, in what he left us, not at the expense of truth. Let me repeat that. Jesus did not teach unity at the expense of truth. In fact, Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. There must be factions among you. There must be divisions among you. Why? But in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, when this pristine, perfect church, listening to the doctrines of the apostles, and Jezebel sneaks in the back door and all of a sudden starts spouting what she wants to say, and Balaam sneaks in the back door over here and he starts talking about what he wants to say, then those who want to adhere to and stay true to the teachings of the apostles must divide. Because unity is important in the church, brothers and sisters, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of the teaching that Jesus brought from heaven and shared with the apostles and the apostles wrote down so that we could share it today. So that's where I'm going to stop it. That's long enough, I know. Um, But let me just kind of point this out to you. Uh, When I first taught this, when when I first went over this, um, it was part of our Wednesday night Bible study of Acts um, we've kind of put that on, on hold for the summer. But, and again, this was all at, during the pandemic, and I'm, I'm teaching to a camera, so I, I can't see anyone. Um, so I had no way of interaction as part of that particular um, um, event, but I do here. So I put these in, in your bulletins. And, and I hope that you'll take one out. Now, again, I goofed up because I, I bit off more than I can chew. We're not going to deal with all four of these today. But here's what I want you to do. If you'll notice, there's two sides to it. On one side, it says the marks of the apostolic church. On the other side, it says the marks of the apostolic Christian. Now, they're really one and the same. But one means corporately and the other means individually. And what I want you to do is to meditate on and grade on a scale of 1 to 10 based on what we are learning about the germinal apostolic church to say, how are we doing? And how far have we fallen from the pure standard that we have of the church? Now, I don't want you, when we talk about the apostolic church and comparing the church today, I don't want you comparing the church at large. I want you to compare New Hope Community Church, this church, this body of Christ. How do we stack up? How do we as a group, 
How can we focus or how are we as far as our concentration on the teaching of the apostles? And then on the flip side, yourself. Because after all, the church is just a collection of people. And, and, and I'm not going to answer them for you because it's really not for me to answer them. This is really for you to answer. Take it with you. Meditate on it. Bring it back next week because we're going to go back over the, the, the other three. Not next week, but when I get back in a couple of weeks. But let me at least give you some guidance as far as what I think, because I'm really interested in what you think, but let me just tell you what I think, and I'm not going to put numbers on it. As far as a corporate church, especially if I look at other churches and the practices of modern Christendom, at least we try to be devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Now, granted, we suffer from a serious lack of talent in in, in the pulpit, but at least from this pulpit, we try every single week to share the Word of God. And it's not just the pulpit. In every venue that we have, whether it's men's ministries or women's ministries, whether it's children's church or Sunday school or jam club or youth group or even our New Hope Christian school, in every single one of our avenues or venues, we attempt to focus completely on the Word of God. So I, I would have to give, her, give ourselves better than middle on that. But you see, that's not the whole story. Because the church is not just what's being taught from the pulpit. To be devoted means that you assimilate it. That you yearn for it. That you're zealous for it. And I have to be honest with you. Some of you do, but there are few. I worry about many of you. I do. I worry about you because we have, during the pandemic, I, I was preparing five lessons a week. Sunday morning, after church, James on Sunday night, uh, Mark on Tuesday night, Acts on Wednesday night. And, and, and a tiny fraction of the congregation shows up. I mean, I mean, and it dwindles down to where, you know, now we have 10, 12 people. The same 10 to 12 people who show up at every single one of those Bible studies. Where, where, where are you? What are you doing on Sunday night? Watching football? Getting ready for Monday? Doing your homework? I mean, what are you doing on the Lord's Day on Sunday night? Now, my hope is, my prayer is that you're actually watching someone else. That, that you're, that you're, when you're, some of the many different excellent teachers who are out there, I, I would much prefer you to be watching them and absorbing their teaching than to be doing nothing. But part of me doesn't believe that. I worry about Sunday-only Christians. I worry about those who don't see this as the Lord's day, but the Lord's hour in the morning. If you go over like I'm going over now, you know, it's like, would you hurry up so I can go home and get on with my life? That's not the early church, folks. That's not the German church. They hungered for the words that the apostles were teaching them. They showed up every time the doors were open. So I have to grade us low. There. And again, there are some who are very good, but when I look at the, the body as a whole, that's not one of our fine points. So I'm going to leave it there today, and I know this feels like I'm just kind of cutting it off in midstream, but let me do this just with the encouragement. Brothers and sisters, this is held up for us as a model. This is why the church was like it was. 
When you read later on and you see that their possessions meant nothing to them, that they loved each other with, I mean, just in completely and totally, and, and, and the, the earthly things didn't matter to them, they were willing to give up their lives for what they believed. Well, one of the reasons for that was that they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how easily distracted we are. Forgive us for how easily led astray we are. Forgive us the fact that you present truth in front of us and we would rather listen to the false claims of a charlatan on TV. And, and, and Lord, we do it every time we fall like dominoes. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would strengthen us, convict us in our hearts, just like Peter convicted those people at Pentecost, convict us in our heart that it, it is your word, that if we're not studying your word, we're simply not spirit-filled, that we need to know what your word says and apply it to, apply it to our lives. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.